This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the latest edition of the AJ Bell Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and this week we'll be looking at why so many companies are receiving takeover offers, as well as chatting about the knock-on effects of the recent banking crisis. Joining me on this episode of the podcast is Tom Selby. Hi, Dan. How's it going? So I'll be exploring potential changes to how much protection the UK government offers on cash in the bank, as well as delving into Finfluencers, whatever they are, those friendly faces you see on social media punting financial products. They pose a few dangers to people, which I'll explain later in the show. Now, we'll cover the latest results from Netflix and the state of play with Manchester United's potential sale as the deadline for its takeover is fast approaching. Yeah, fascinating stuff. We've also got JP Morgan's Nicholas Windling on the show to talk about investing in Japan. But first up, let's look at the latest events on the market. Yeah, so I mean, some of the key things that caught my eye were better than expected first quarter GDP figures out of China. Now, we know that the the country has relaxed its restrictions on sort of COVID-related stuff um, in the hope that this will reopen the economy. And these are the first signs. It's, of course, 4.5%, much better than expected. Um, Actually, in March, we saw 10.6% rise in retail sales. Um, And so it's all kind of all looking quite good for for China's target to achieve 5% GDP growth for the year. Of course, this has been a sort of a consumption-led recovery, and shares in sort of uh, luxury good companies and sort of leisure companies—they're all they've already rallied in anticipation of getting some good results. Miners have sort of been left behind a bit. They did perk up on the on the news of the latest figures, but um, yeah, I think growth in industrial output is still below pre-pandemic levels. Um, and there's been sort of weak real estate construction as well, although that's been offset by a surge in infrastructure investment. So um, I think it's probably fair to say this rebound is still in its early phase. Um, some of the other things catching my eye were the latest figures from Netflix. It added 1.75 million subscriptions in the quarter, but that was below the market expectations for 2.06 million and so, the, so some things that you know, sort of stand out from these figures. One, it's launched this um, advertising-led um, cheaper subscription tier. So far, they don't sort of it hasn't really resulted in sort of this big surge in in sort of subscription numbers. The other thing is that it's trying to do this crackdown on password sharing, but um, it's rolled it out into a couple of territories. And sort of the, the feedback has been that people have been cancelling their subscriptions rather than simply the, the ones that sort of the freeloaders taking out new ones. So it's delayed the rollout of this sort of crackdown to the US um, by a couple of months just so it can sort of incorporate some of the learning. So I guess you know there was initial reaction on the stock market, but the shares plummeted. But actually, you know, after a couple of hours, they managed to sort of claw back all those sort of losses. But I think here you've got um, a business going through a lot of change, under pressure to keep coming up with uh, big titles, you know, popular things all the time. 
Um, it's got to live up to expectations of continually growing, and it's just become harder and harder. Um, it, you know, and finally, quite surprisingly, it's decided to stop sending out physical DVDs to people in the post. So, Tom, I mean, when was the last time you actually touched a DVD? Oh, I was going to say, I, can't, I, can't, I certainly can't remember the last time I, I bought a DVD, let alone touched one. It must have been, God, you must be talking about the best part of a decade ago now, surely. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I reckon it must have been 20 years ago, you used to be able to go like a cash machine, you hole in the wall, you, you'd, you'd be able to sort of type in, put your card in and rent a DVD that way. And then when you finished, you, you, you put it back into the hole in the wall. But yeah, did you have a huge DVD collection, Dan? What was what was in your collection? Yeah, no, I, I had quite a lot of stuff. And t- mm. to be fair, I still do have some things. And um, you know, you got the option these days, you think, okay, I want to watch this film. Do I want to pay three or four pounds if it's not on one of the streaming services to rent it, or can I be just be bothered to open up the cupboard and stick it in the machine? And I did actually get the find the remote control for the DVD player the other day, but I guess you know, give it a couple of years. I mean, you already see it in the charity shops, don't you? They're, they're full mm. of they're full of DVDs, and you know the direction of travel is that people just simply want it to be um to be streaming. So so yeah, so old poor old Netflix is it's you know, it is still growing, you know, to be fair. Um and the income it's getting from advertising is perhaps a little bit better than expected. But um, you know, there's so many people out there looking to find fault with the business and um there's certainly enough uh, negative points in these latest numbers to um you know to, to, to help people sharpen their knives, so to speak. Yeah. So, so Dan, the headlines over the past week or so have been dominated by news of company takeovers. So can you tell us what exactly has been going on? Yeah, I mean, there's there's been quite a lot of stuff. And I think trying to sort of make sense of why it's happening. And there seems to be the, the feeling that in, in recent weeks, we've had um, sort of changing outlook on the UK economy. So you've had the Office of Budget Responsibility saying the UK would have avoid a recession this year. Um, some economists are sort of saying, actually, you know, growth may, may not be very good, but it's, it's it's perhaps not as bad as we thought. So um, you're seeing, you know, we've had bids for THG, Network International, Wood Group, um, Decra Pharmaceuticals said it's uh, in discussions about a possible takeover. Um, from private equity, um, got names like Hive, the exhibition firms, and Industrials REITs. Um, you know, it's not just, but it's not just the UK market that's seeing mm. these things. We've got some overseas stuff as well. So um, in Japan, Sega Sammy, the, you know, the, the gaming giant behind Sonic Hedgehog, they've uh, agreed to buy um, Rovio, which makes Angry Birds games. Um, the German pharmaceutical company Merck has got an $11 billion bid for US biotech firm Prometheus Biosciences. And actually, you know, talking back about Netflix, you know, there's ongoing chatter that Microsoft might want to buy Netflix. You know, it's already big in gaming, so adding the sort of the streaming movies and, and TV makes strategic sense. So I think, just think that you know, perhaps there's been sort of bid interest bubbling away in the background, but because of sort of um, economic and political turmoil, um, things are sort of being parked. But now, because those sort of perhaps are sort of easing down or, or, or a little bit more clarity, you know, all these sort of deals that have been sort of being prepared behind closed doors and now getting sort of slapped on the table. So yeah, really, really interesting times actually. Yeah. And then of course we've got the, that takes us neatly through to the potential 
deal for Premier League club Manchester United. Now, I, 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 I thank you for allowing me to, to cover this one. So stocks and things are, are Dan's speciality generally, but football is very much my <laughs> speciality. So, so Man United have been the subject of intense speculation for a while. So they're currently two-thirds, about two-thirds owned by the Glazer family. So a very famous sports-owning family, of course. Also owned the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the NFL team that won the Super Bowl a couple of years back with Tom Brady at quarterback in his mid-40s. So the Glazers bought Manchester United way back in 2005. I remember it all happening for what seemed like an, an eye-watering sum at the time, the kind of money you couldn't really get your head around of £790 million. But they're now in the market to sell. And according to reports, the valuation that they've they've slapped on the, on the overall Manchester United asset is somewhere between five and six billion pounds so serious money there um, there have been a couple of people who've been linked with an outright deal to buy Manchester United so Qatari banker Sheikh Jassim bin Hamad Al Thani I hope I pronounced that right and Ineos founder Sir Jim Ratcliffe both linked with buying the Glazers stake out, outright um, the, the the former so uh, Sheikh Al Thani apparently wants a hundred percent ownership of the companies now Many Manchester United fans, certainly fans that I know, had been hoping for a sale from a sporting perspective. So they felt that the Glazers have have generally underinvested in the football club versus some of their rivals. I think that that kind of thing is never helped by the fact that Manchester City, of course, their local rivals and, and Liverpool have enjoyed particular success over a period where things at Old Trafford haven't quite been going so well, certainly on the football pitch Anyway, now, as you mentioned at the top, there's there's a deadline for, for final bids coming up. It's the end of this month, so the 28th of April. The bidding process has been pretty protracted by all accounts. Um, but reports now suggesting that the Glazers might not want to sell outright at all. And actually, we've seen a, a report from Sky News over the weekend suggesting that Giant American financial investor Carlisle, a, f- a familiar name, went in a, in bids and acquisitions in the UK, is in talks about a, a significant investment in the football club. So Carlisle in the UK has previously invested in companies like RAC uh, Breakdown Recovery Service and Addison Lee, the taxi hire group. So clearly this is something I think we're going to see plenty more rumour and speculation on as the deadline comes. We're lacking a bit of detail on exactly what Carlisle's interest looks like, but there's potential here for the Glazers to hang on grimly to to their stake and just get a bit of extra outside investment rather than selling the club altogether. So that's really interesting stuff. I mean, it's quite... Normally, you get these takeover uh, activities all happen behind closed doors, and mm. we, we don't hear until someone is like ready. And but this one seems to be going on for months and months. I mean, it's very unusual. But I mean, you're you're the sporting expert, Tom. Is this is this sort of the way that, that, that deals are done in the sports world? 
Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. It might be a specific um, a thing that's specific to the, to the Glazers. There's clearly some, um, they, they, they clearly see some value in building some froth and some interest around the football club. We've certainly seen it in the past, although I've, I've seen it in other industries as well. Even in the, the pensions market, I've seen SIP providers kind of be put up for sale just to build up a valuation and see what it's worth. And then the owner may sell or the may, owner may decide that they, uh, that they want to keep hold of their stake in the company or keep ownership of the company after all. Um, so I think, I think it's probably something that's quite specific to the Glazers at the moment. And, you know, we'll, we'll, I, th- I, think, I think things have gone quite quiet publicly. So, so whether or not we get a full sale or a partial sale or an investment, I'm not sure. I think the, the aim of the game seems to be to try to drum up some investment and ultimately, I'm sure, to get the, the best possible deal that they, that they can for, for their stake or a part of their stake in the club. Now, we've had quite a few US banks reports, uh, figures over the last week or so, and you know some of them have been you know, much better than expected. But there's one thing that sort of struck me was you know, quite some of the names were talking about how they've had really big outflows for, for deposits. Um, you know, people have been taking cash out of their accounts and either moving it to competitors to try and get higher returns or they've been putting it into areas like money market funds or even to sort of, uh, government bonds. And I think this has been in part driven by the collapse of Silicon Bank depositors thinking, OK, maybe we need to sort of double check where we're happy where we've got our money. And also we can't just leave it lying around sitting in low yielding accounts. So Charles Schwab, State Street and MN. And T, you know, they suffered nearly $60 billion in combined bank deposit outflows in the first quarter, which is quite, quite remarkable numbers. Um, I think what's going on here is that you've got um, potential you know, knock-on effect of this, the banking crisis that we've seen recently is some of these regional and smaller lenders are certainly feeling the pressure about um, they're going to have to offer better savings rates. And I think that the banking industry as a whole, particularly in the US, is is looking at what they're doing and, and realizing actually that we, in order to be able to you know, have strong deposits, uh, attract more customers, we're going to have to be a bit more generous with the yields. And I think this is leading to um, you know kind of like a war in the, in the deposit sector. So who can offer the best rate to attract business? Now, that's not necessarily good for their earnings because it could squeeze their profit margins. But, um, you know, we've also got the potential threat that financial institutions might be forced to hold more capital. But but I did see with interest that Apple had launched a U.S. savings account with Goldman Sachs, um, offering 4.15% annual interest. So that compares with an average savings account rate across America of 0.37%. So, um, it's better than the previous market leader, which is American Express. And also Goldman Sachs has got its Marcus account as well, which offers 3.9%. But, you know, in, in the UK, I mean, it, it, I guess it's, um, we haven't got rates perhaps that high, um, but, you know, we have seen banks sort of you know, up their game a bit. So, I mean, Tom, I know that you've been looking at what, what sort of the, the type of deals that you, you know, UK people can get on, on cash in the bank at the moment. Yeah, I think I think that's all that's all really interesting, and and I think we 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 have to remember that I guess behaviourally for a lot of people we've had a period of a decade or so where really switching banks to get a better interest rate, the return for the for that effort that you put in to shop around and make the decision wasn't particularly 
high. Whereas now, as you say, you're looking at the rates that are, are on offer and actually it can really pay significantly to, to look around the market and make sure you're getting the best rate possible, particularly with inflation still saying so persistently high. So just before we came on air this morning, I think the ONS um, has UK inflation down, but still at over 10%. So we've obviously got Bank of England England interest rate staking at around uh, just over 4%. And so that's why we're able to get these better returns or even on easy access current accounts. So there's, there's various ways that you can shop around the market. Websites like Money Saving Expert are particularly your, your friend here. So if you look at the market for easy access accounts at the moment, it tends to be some of the new kids on the block that will offer you the best rates. So app only um, lender Chip currently offers the top rate for easy access savings accounts at 3.55%. So not quite up to the level of, of the Apple account that you mentioned, but still compared to the doldrums that we've seen over the last decade where most most uh, most banks were offering little or nothing in, in return for holding your money, then that's a decent rate of return. If you're looking for Bank, uh, lenders who you know, who you're a bit more familiar with. So lots of people do prepare to go, prefer to go with someone who they know rather than one of these new new lenders. Then the post office offers 3.22% with unlimited withdrawals. Um, but that includes a bonus of 2.32% for 12 months. So the rate will reduce after that. There's also Sainsbury's, which offers 3.22% with a minimum investment of £1,000 and, and nationwide at 3%. So those are all decent rates available to, to people. Also, one thing to remember as well is that those are the open market rates. So it's possible if you already have a certain type of an account with a lender that you'll be able to get even better than that. So for example, Barclays have a rainy day saver that's available to Barclays Blue Reward customers only. And if you invest in that, you can get 5.12% on up to £5,000 invested in that account. Nationwide Flex Direct and Santander Edge Savers, other examples of that type of account where if you're already a customer there, then you could potentially get an even better rate than, than the rate that's available on the market. So I think Firstly, the message to people is if you're getting little to no interest on your savings, then now is a really, really good time to get out there and lock into a decent rate, particularly as people are generally expecting base rates to reduce over the course of the next year or two years. Or of course, as we've seen over the past 18 months or two years, nothing's absolutely guaranteed in that space. And also make sure you look both in the open market and also check to make sure you you don't you couldn't potentially qualify for one of these extra boosts with one of these lenders where where if you're already a customer they might offer you an even better rate. So I think it's an interesting time to be a, a short-term saver and there's lots of opportunities out there. It's just a case of making sure you're armed with the information and using the tools that are available. And I think it's it's important to think about the direction of interest rates. Um, now, we've just had some figures showing that inflation is still double digit in the mm. UK. Um, wage growth is sort of accelerating faster than expected. So there, there are sort of the, the type of pressures that would perhaps convince the Bank of England to push up rates again. So the next one will be in May. Potentially, that could go to 4.5%. However, Lots of people are saying, well, you know, if you take a, you know, perhaps six months down the line, you know, by the end of the year, we might see rates cut mm. to 3%. Potentially, it could fall to 2.5% uh, 
um, by the end of sort of 2025. So if you are thinking about you, you've got some spare cash, what to do, we could potentially be at that sort of cusp of the, the, the peak of where you might see rates go. So you, know, you must never sort of rush in to make any financial decisions. But um, if you are thinking about hard with what to do with cash, then you know, now is, is definitely the time to, to you know, put, your, put your sort of thinking cap on. And the other thing that I think is obviously the, the, the conversation talking about cash is you know, people always say, well, how much of my money is protected? How safe mm. is it? So, Tom, I know that you, you, you know, we, we were chatting about this in the office yesterday. There might be some potential changes, aren't there, to the type of protection that you get? Yeah, that's right. So, so nothing concrete at this stage, but some some important news of a possible review of the amount of cash that is protected in the UK in the event that the financial institution you're holding your money goes bust. So the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, also referred often to as the the FSCS um, Deposit Guarantee, currently stands at £85,000 for cash in the bank or for your investments. Now that's £85,000 per financial institution holding your money. That's a very important clarification. According to the Financial Times, the FSCS is being urgently reviewed after that rapid failure of Silicon Valley Bank you mentioned um, happened last month when billions were were withdrawn in a panic from SVP's UK subsidiary overnight. Now, regulators are said to be worried that the guarantee's current 85,000 pounds limit only covers about two thirds of deposits held in accounts in the UK and that the relatively low level of what's referred to as pre-funding means there's a delay of at least a week for customers to regain access to their cash. So there's a concern there that because there's not enough money in the system and that the, the, the cover's too low, A, too many people are going to be left exposed if if we see a lender go under or a lender face financial stress and b if if uh, if customers are trying to get money out of the bank that they won't be able to do it as quickly as possible and that might under confident undermine confidence in the banking system as well so it's something that's clearly being looked at urgently by the treasury in light of what we saw with silicon Valley Bank will likely see some pushback on the idea of increasing the amount that needs to be levied on uh, banks by those lenders, because clearly they're not going to want another drain on their um, on their cash flows and to have extra money having to go into into ensuring that customers have more protection. Um, we don't we don't have any kind of clear light on exactly what this is, this looks like or what reform is going to look like, but I think definitely one to keep an eye on because clearly that FSCS limit is an important factor in deciding where you're going to put your savings, particularly if you've got savings over and above that £85,000 level, because often it can make sense to split your money between different institutions in order to make sure you maximise the compensation cover you get in the event that something does go wrong with that the bank that has your money. Now, Tom, I know you're a big social media fan, Huge. I'm always seeing you standing at the bus stop, looking at TikTok, having a chuckle. <laughs> have you ever you ever come across a finfluencer? 
you have any, any well, idea what on earth that is? I suspect, I suspect lots of us have. I, th- I think some people might argue that you're a influencer, Dan. You're, a, you're a, a well-known person in the financial services space who tweets every now and again. That might be, uh, that might categorise you as a influencer. Although, of course, all of your stuff is independent, and you're you're not you're not paid to promote things. But the 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 area of concern that the Financial Conduct Authority, so the UK Conduct Regulator, has been focusing on here is on influencers using social media sites like TikTok and Instagram and others to provide information about saving and investing to people. So there's a concern here that some people who who promote stuff, often things like cryptocurrencies on on their Instagram and on their TikTok and in other places, might not be doing the, the relevant checks either on the 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 product they're promoting or making sure that the information they're providing is accurate and correct and isn't going to mislead people or lead to me people potentially making poor financial decisions so the fca has teamed up with the advertising standards agency and sharon gafka are you aware of sharon gafka dan uh, I have to confess, no, I'm not. She was, she was apparently on on Love Island, although it was a, it was a name that was was news to me. But a, a, a an influencer on social media to to help educate influencers about the the risks involved in promoting financial products. So often you will have people who aren't from financial services, who aren't regulated financial services individuals, going being paid by companies who have assets to flog or products to flog to um to, to promote those products online without as i say doing the the checks that you would hope someone would do when when promoting something so the fca and the and the advertising standards agency have said they'll be engaging with influencers and their age agents and they're providing them with with more information about what could be an illegal financial promotion but i think i think this shows just how difficult the world of social media is for everyone but particularly for regulators so regulators might previously have focused on the the regulated companies that 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 they're responsible for there may have been a little bit of unregulated stuff going on on the side that they'd be concerned about but they'd have the resources to to target those people who were accused of wrongdoing and potentially to to shut them down where customers were were being put at risk with with social media um and the 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 various different forms of social media that exist it's it's possible for anyone at any time to promote anything um so people could be being paid by you know for example a, a cryptocurrency to flog their product and they may or may not um follow the the relevant rules when doing that um but there could also be people who are putting any type of information whether it's on your finances or anything else on their social media account and if it gets retweeted if it gets shared then that that information could, that that information's reach can can expand significantly and the danger is that people are either being pushed to things that perhaps aren't in their best interests or are being given information that isn't going to help them make good financial financial decisions so i think there's a sense that the regulators and everyone else frankly is kind of running to stand still in, in keeping up with the development of social media and some of the the risks involve um to my mind there's there's, there's kind of there are some potential positives 
that could come out of this. So clearly, if social media is used responsibly, then you could potentially have a platform which allows lots more people to get lots more useful information about how to save and invest and the benefits of saving in a pension and the drawbacks and all the rest of it. The, the, the danger is that that battle for engagement is going to be won by people who don't necessarily have people's best interests at heart and are potentially only interested in either lining their own pockets or at the worst end of the, spe- the spectrum are looking to to scam people so to, there's lots of financial fraud that goes on through through social media and that's why anyone who's engaging with things like TikTok and um, on Instagram and, and thinking about their financial services needs to be really careful and treat any information that you see on there um suspiciously in the first instance so make sure that you check any any facts or any claims with um trusted websites whether that be government resources like money helper um, whether that be on websites again like money saving expert which tend to have lots of useful information there's various ways that you can check any claims that are made on social media but at the moment it's kind of a bit of a wild west um and so so there are some quite significant dangers involved both in in the promotion of products on on social media and in some of the general information that's given there as well well thanks tom that's that is good stuff i mean it's it's so easy isn't it to be able to you get use your phone uh film yourself stick it on youtube or, or tiktok so um, like I say, I have actually come across some some really useful information out there. Yeah. So it's, it's really important to stress that there are some very bright people out there who are doing really good stuff to help people. But fortunately, you know, you as the viewer needs to sort of distinguish between um, what's useful and and what you know what could be very harmful. So um, just the usual standard uh, approach to anything with saving investing, particularly on the vesting side of things, understand what could go wrong. Um, just don't follow someone blindly in terms of what they're saying. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so now it's time for our special guest on this week's podcast. Warren Buffett has just spent a few days in Tokyo to meet with Japan's five biggest trading houses after his Berkshire Hathaway investment vehicle built up a 7.4% stake in each of them. That's created, understandably, a lot of excitement about what the sage of Omaha sees in the country and the opportunities available to investors. While we don't have Mr. Buffett on the show, Dan, come on, you're going to have to get that sorted out sooner or later. We (laughs) do have the next best thing, which is Nicholas Windling, the manager of JP Morgan Japanese Investment Trust. He is based in Tokyo and knows a lot of what's going on with Japanese companies and the country's stock market. So, Nicholas, the, the Nikkei 225 index in Japan has had a pretty good start to the year, up about 8%, and the Topics index up 6%. What have been the key drivers for you know, these Japanese markets to do so well? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things here. Um, the first one is that Japan is in quite a different part of the economic cycle to the rest of the world. So, for example, um, foreigners have only been able to come into Japan since October last year. Um, so we've seen a big recovery now in tourism. And even domestically, um, the mask mandate or where you need to wear a mask, that was only dropped uh, in March. So last month, our children uh, have been wearing masks at school uh, all the way up until now, but from next term, they won't have to do it anymore. Um, so Japan, the recovery is a bit slower than elsewhere in the world. 
Um, also, Japan's largest trading partner is China. And obviously, China is also reopening. So there's quite a lot of companies that benefit from, from that. Um, and I think uh, beyond that, what we've got is a, what I think is nothing short of a corporate governance revolution going on in Japan right now. And I think people are being quite slow to appreciate what's going on there. But that, I think, is also garnering more attention. Have the fears around the banking crisis that we've seen in the US and Europe spilled over into Japan at all? I don't think that we really have to be so concerned about those banking fears. I mean, it could mean that the global economy might slow down somewhat um, because maybe we'd see less lending in the US. But Japanese banks overall are really quite have very little exposure to um, those developed markets. Um, you know, it's a very stable um, economy in Japan, and um, we expect to see it being pretty resilient uh, from that point of view. What's been happening with interest rates and inflation in Japan? Is it sort of a different situation to US and UK where, where sort of both rates and inflation have been going up? It, is been, it has been quite different. <laughs> you're absolutely right. And, you know, you've got to see that also in the long term context. So um, I've been living in Japan in total for nearly 20 years. But for that time, Japan's basically been in deflation for more or less the entire period. And interest rates remain very, very low. In fact, we still have negative interest rates in Japan. Just to give you an example, I don't wish to make your listeners all feel envious, but you know we have a, a fixed rate mortgage on our property or where we live in our apartment in Tokyo, which is at 0.6%. So it's a very, very different environment. Um, and naturally, a little bit of inflation in Japan would be quite good news. Um, you know, it could start to get the, the economy moving a bit more. Um, and we have seen, actually, the first kind of significant wage hikes in Japan for many, many years. In fact, most people in Japan haven't had any wage increase for 30 years, which, you know, if you think about the issues we've got in the UK at the moment, it's quite a, a remarkable thing. But recently, wages are going up, and that could mean that we see a bit more of a, a domestic recovery. But it is quite a different set of circumstances that we have in Japan to what you have in the UK and other uh, developed markets. I guess if if Japan's got like a stagnant economy, does that, does that make it really hard for Japanese companies to try and achieve good levels of earnings growth? I think the most surprising thing about Japan in the last decade or so is that the level of profit growth or earnings per share growth for the Japan market is exactly the same on a local currency basis as the S&P 500. So there is no link at all between what's going on in the economy and what's happening to companies. They are completely different. And I think it is one of the biggest misunderstandings about the Japanese market overall. You've seen in the US a kind of re-rating of those strong earnings. Companies have become more expensive. But Japanese companies have delivered the same level of earning growth, but have become progressively um, cheaper over time. So um, I don't think that anybody should be thinking about what's going on in the Japanese economy. It's all about what is the outlook for companies. Is that because there's quite a lot of Japanese companies that are on the stock market or actually do business um, in other parts of the world? They're not simply a domestic play. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, if you look at the market overall, roughly speaking, 60% of companies are exporters um, and they tend to be uh, quite cyclical as well. But yes, that is uh, one reason why that happens. And a lot of these companies are extremely well positioned when it comes to overseas. So 
Um, you know, if you look at things like um, robotics or factory automation, the world leading pure play companies are all based in Japan. Um, and obviously, you've got wages rising all over the world. Therefore, companies automate more、um, to kind of compensate for those higher costs, or they want to shift production outside of China because there's obviously tension between the West and China, which also means like when you move the factory, put in more robots and automation. And those companies are. Um, big exports or big foreign denominated earnings. So you're right, that is the pattern. But you know, and within that, we can find very strongly positioned companies that actually you can't buy that type of exposure anywhere else in the world. I was going to ask you whether you know, if you owned、uh, or put money into a sort of a Japanese fund or an investment trust, is there something that you don't get from owning a global fund or, or broad Asia fund? Is is it sort of a, you know, a certain type of?、Um, A company in a certain type of sector, like robotics, for example. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So within the、uh, JPM Japanese Investment Trust, it's an unconstrained approach. We just want to have the very best companies with the best outlooks over the next five or ten years. And it often is the case that you just can't buy those type of companies elsewhere. Robotics is a good、um, example of that. But other examples would mean include things like if you look at the top fifty selling computer games of all time. Half of them are Japanese titles, things like Pokemon or Super Mario.、Um, they're all come. You know, we've got the, the, the best companies with exposure to that kind of idea. Or if you look, I mean, I'm quite struck being here in the UK for a few days about you know how much more people are cycling here, and you see more e-bikes. Well, 75% of gears for bicycles are made by Shimano, a Japanese company. So if you want to get exposure to that kind of idea. It's really that's the company that you you need to do it through. So we get this very unique types of exposure, and even in some things like healthcare,、um, that we know that unfortunately the amount of heart disease is increasing around the world.、Um, historically, you might have had、um, open heart surgery、um, for the procedure to create that, but now you have non-invasive surgery. But if you look at you know what are the instruments that the surgeons are, are using. Fifty、um, percent of the time, or fifty percent market shares, goes to a Japanese company called Asahi Intec, making the catheters you use in that procedure. So we get these incredibly strongly positioned companies, and I'd say, in a nutshell, there are incredibly strong companies in Japan with quite unique outlooks over the next five or ten years. But they are not the companies that investors or people in the UK and elsewhere tend to associate with Japan, which is still associated, I think, with things, industries like cars or maybe consumer electronics and so on. So,、um, where are you seeing sort of really good opportunities at the moment? Is there, is there sort of a give you an idea of a stock perhaps that's sort of、um, sort of shining light in your portfolio at the moment? Well, one company that I'd highlight is a company called、um, Nakanishi. They are、um, global number one in dental hand pieces and also、um, wire that you use when you are doing、um, brain surgery. So, very dominant company in a niche. Um, it doesn't really have any sell side coverage. There's no analyst really writing about that company. That's a big feature of Japan, where half of the companies have no covering analysts. Now we've got 25 people based on the ground in Tokyo, so you know we're able to look for them. And that kind of company, it's got a very good,、um, steady growth outlook. It's trading on a kind of mid teens. I mean, like 16, 17 times price earnings multiple, which. For the profile, the strength of the balance sheet, the long-term growth outlook、um, is really quite a low multiple in a global context. That was Nicholas Winling there from the J.P. Morgan Japanese Investment Trust. That's all we have 
time for this week. It's been a really interesting show and I've really enjoyed being on. So thanks for having me, Dan. Don't miss next week's show where we'll have Ritu Vahora from T. Rowe Price on the podcast to talk about what's going on in the markets and how that might shape investors' portfolios. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.